0: and taste. This is a podcast where we create and discuss homebrew content for tabletop RPGs.
1: And this week we will remind you, he who fights with monsters should look to it that he himself does not become a monster.
0: I'm Ian Woodworth and I'm joined by my co-host James Daly. Today we are continuing our trek through the Outer Plains by popular demand. The second place in the second batch of planes was a tie between the Abyss and the Nine Hells and we rolled even odd, and the Abyss won. So we're going to definitively say that the demons have won the blood war because they get to go first.
1: (laughs) Or at least they've won the coin toss and they get to kick off. (laughs) Football season is coming up. I'm kind of excited.
0: Well, given that they are agents of chaos, as opposed to the devils that are agents of law, it's totally within the nature of demons to cheat. Yeah, absolutely. I think it was just a false start. Possibly. That said, as a complete aside,
1: if you enjoy some stupid campy games that are football themed, I will say Steam has Blood Bowl, which is a Warhammer fantasy themed football type game where you can go and you've got all the races. You can injure players, you can kill players on the field. It's actually a lot of fun. It's really more fun than it should be. But yeah, check it out if you like that kind of thing,
0: just because why not? (laughs) Disclaimer, we are not sponsored by Steam or Games Workshop. But we will take your money if you want to give us money. Absolutely. it's
1: just, just like I said, it's a fun, campy game. I'll load it up every now and again. Just to, I'll have a giant like golem dude step on some goblins or some skaven or whatever. Like I said, it, It's actually good fun.
0: <laughs> I'm not too proud to pick up a copy of Warhammer Fantasy. And we do 10 episodes of Warhammer Fantasy if Games Workshop wants to cut us a check. Oh, that'd be great. Anyway. <laughs> rabbit Trails. Getting back on topic. Welcome to the Abyss.
1: <laughs> yeah, welcome to the Abyss. It's going to be full of Rabbit Trails. As much as we've had to dig into old lore and as fun as it's been to do that with some of these other realms, Wizards came and said, oh, you don't think there's enough write-up? And so there's just a literal glut of information. It's very much like Homer Simpson in the episode where he sells his soul and he goes to hell and he's force-fed all the donuts. And there's like an entire... layer of hell filled with donuts and they're feeding them donuts two at a time that's what we are with information today
0: yeah because the blood war is such a huge part of dnd lore and the blood war happens between the demons and the devils the abyss and the nine hells are the two of the outer planes that have the most stuff just going off of what is published we could easily do five episodes on the abyss Oh, easily, yeah. Easily do five episodes on the Abyss. We could do one on just all of the Demon Princes of the Abyss. We could do one on the different types of demons. We could do one on the different known layers of the Abyss. There's so many different things that we could do. So we're going to try and make this a little more of an overview. This is going to be a Midwest in an airplane episode, or at least that's what we're going to try for.
1: This is when I was in college. I did a minor in history, basically. I enjoyed the classes, but they called them a survey course, where basically it was like your first course of Western Civ that was like your undergrad prerequisite. We're basically going to tell you this happened. If you want to know more, you can research it or there's other classes but we are going to note this happened and move on. And that's kind of what we're going to do here. As Ian said, there's a lot to be covered. And as Halloween comes up, I would be all for covering some of these more in depth for like a Halloween type thing. It'd be kind of perfect a Samhain themed. I don't really want to do that.
0: Yeah, we'll definitely need to be figuring out what we're going to be doing for Halloween. Actually, this would be a good time. Listeners, if you have suggestions on what we should do for Halloween, go ahead and send us an email under undercommentaste at gmail.com or send us a direct message through our Twitter account at UCT Homebrew. Go ahead and get that in early.
1: So, do you want to try to just jump in both feet?
0: Yeah. All right. Let's, let's just go ahead and jump right in. And so, the Abyss is an infinite pit with layers on layers. It is the embodiment of evil's corruption of chaos. Where in Arborea, like we talked about last week, it is very chaotic, but it is chaos Of creation. It is the good, aligned side of chaos. And Limbo is just pure chaos. It can create, it can destroy, it can do whatever it wants. Everything in the abyss is intended to destroy in the most catastrophic way possible.
1: It is here to break you down. It is here to make you cry. I'm going to be referencing a whole lot of pop culture things throughout this because just, oh my God. But if you were to figure out the limit configuration and open up a box full of Cenobites, they're coming pretty much from the Abyss.
0: Yeah. So to quote the third edition Manual of the Planes, the Abyss is not actually infinite, but nobody has bothered to map out all of the layers because it is so incredibly dangerous that no one has any desire to know what everything is or how to get there
1: which makes sense yeah i mean it's just not worth it
0: yeah but the quote from the third edition manual of the planes is conventional wisdom places the number of layers of the abyss at 666 though there may be more.
1: They were kind of running with the whole satanic panic at that thing, and, I mean, 666, why not just run with it? I was going to say, though, just as a start, that's a great start for a campaign hook, is that your party's, you know, been hired by some, like, shady cartography company that was like, we need adventurers to make us a map, and, like, the pay seemed like, stupid good, so why not? And then they just shove you in and say, count till you reach the bottom.
0: Oh, I've got it even better. Okay. It is a front by the devil's... To map out the abyss so they'd know where to strike.
1: Oh, that'd be a great... Yeah, so at the end of it, you realize that you've been hired by a bunch of devils. They
0: are the cartographers?
1: No, they're the company.
0: Oh, okay, yeah. The company's a front by the devils.
1: Yeah, that's what I mean. It would be a cartography company, so
0: yeah. But the cartographers themselves are not devils. Right. Everybody that you actually interact with is normal, run-of-the-mill humanoid but the people running the company is Jeff Bezos. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So the people running the company are devils. Okay. Yeah.
1: That's awesome. I love it.
0: Yeah. So whenever we talk about the abyss, the dominant race in the abyss are the Tanari, which are colloquially referred to as demons. They were referred to as Tanari, up through 3rd edition, possibly into 4th edition. I don't know. I haven't looked in the 4th edition monster manuals, but that tag has been largely removed in 5th edition. They have lumped them all together as fiends, which I think does them all a great disservice.
1: Yeah, and again, a lot of stuff got lumped and kind of grouped together 5th edition to make it quote, quote, more accessible. And they've done that It's simplicity for accessibility, but it does hurt the lore.
0: But the thing is, I don't think this bit of simplicity actually improves the game.
1: Yeah, I agree with that too.
0: I think that keeping at least the devils, the demons, and the yugoloths, the three of those major players separate from one another as separate entity groups would have been much better for their narrative of the continuation of the Blood War.
1: I agree, and that's what I said. They created simplicity at the cost of the game lore. So they took from the game lore to make things a little easier.
0: So the Tenari in 2nd Edition used to be divided into five categories. Least, Lesser, Greater, True, and Guardian. With increasing power scaling as you go from one category to the next. The least were the Manes, or the Mains. I don't know how you pronounce that. I think it's Manes. But I've heard it both ways. It's M-A-N-E. So it it looks like Maine, but I think it's pronounced Mane. Um,
1: I have no clue. I have
0: no idea, but we don't really have to go into that. (laughs) (laughs) But they are the petitioners of the Abyss. They are the souls of the dead that get condemned to the Abyss. But condemned is kind of a strong term because everyone who is a demon wants to be a demon. Everyone who is a demon has purposely made the choices in their life that sent them to the abyss.
1: It's like the old bumper sticker meme, I don't suffer from insanity, but I enjoy every minute of it.
0: Right. And they are just literal cannon fodder. They are just the hordes that get thrown against the infernal lines in the Blood War. And if Amane ends up being exemplary enough they end up eventually getting the eye of a more powerful demon who will bestow upon them power and then they will change form into a more powerful Tenari and more powerful demon. So basically it's a field promotion. Yeah. (laughs) And the same thing for devils. Devils do the same thing. I think it's dretches are the infernal equivalent of the Mane. They're just the really weak souls of the dead that just sort of are used they're sometimes used as food there's an instance a little bit later on where they're used as fuel to power a ship and i'll get to that in a little bit but basically they're the bottom of the totem pole and as you go up there are a lot of different varieties of tenari i was able to count 35 different varieties without really having to look too hard. That was without pulling all of the books off of my shelf.
1: That is absolute insanity.
0: So, there are some that are a little bit more common that some people may have familiarity with. The meroliths they're basically six armed snake ladies with scimitars.
1: Uh, you actually kind of see something similar to these in uh, Burning Crusade early on. The meroliths you see a lot of the uh, demoness walk around. They only yeah. have forearms. But you can... Definitely tell they took their inspiration from this particular art.
0: For people who have continued to play through World of Warcraft, Queen Ashara would be a Merolith. Correct. Then you have the Balor. The Balor is basically the Balrog from Lord of the Rings. It's your big stereotypical demon with the big wings and the fur and the cow feet and the cow horns and the very big bestial breathes fire
1: roar looks like a beefy satyr that's on fire yeah it's a little bit different than the balrog from super mario brothers which is just a weird giant lava crocodile but whatever we'll take it
0: right see <laughs> so here there's the quasit the quasit is basically the demon version of the imp
1: so magnus had a quasit as a familiar going through i've mentioned my evil character magnus quite a bit and If you get to play with one of these generally in 3rd edition, I think they're still kicking around in 5th edition. They are. They can do some interesting things, though, because they do have innate invisibility. And depending on the version, I know in 3rd edition, they also had a poison attack as well. So these can be a lot of fun to kind of tinker with. But just so you know,
0: Magnus had a quasit familiar. Yes, he did. So the Succubus and Incubus are both demons. I think that the Succubus is prevalent enough in popular culture that i don't have to describe what a succubus is
1: yeah and the incubus is an alt-rock band from the early 2000s
0: <laughs> they are i actually kind of liked incubus a little bit
1: i still do too i mean they pop up on the playlist it's like oh i remember that that was some good times yeah
0: they're not my favorite but i'll listen to them if they come up i mean they're no nickelback okay um i think we have to end the uh, podcast now uh, i'm not
1: saying i like nickelback what i'm saying is i won't turn them off if they pop up oh and actually you know what nickelbacks their songs aren't terrible they do what they do they are good background music i'll stand up for nickelback you know what they filled a role there was a vacuum they stepped into it they're not great but they were there they've obviously sold a whole hell of a lot more tickets than i have so who am i to throw stones right
0: i suppose <laughs> at least it's not creed yes anyway moving <laughs> along there's did you say rabbit trails yes we did <laughs> there's the Garistro, which is kind of like a baylor but not really. For people who are fans of Critical Role, the big fight with the Ice Dragon, was it Vorgal, I think it was, Yank, the demon that they pulled through the gate, he was a garistro. Oh, nice. And they are big and mean. And then the last one that I wanted to touch on, I think this one came to 5th edition in Mordenkainen's Tome of Foes, is called the Yoklol. Y-O-C-H-L-O-L. That's just a great name. And... They have had so much of their stuff pruned away from them. I just happened to find it in the second edition Planescape Monster Compendium. Oh my God, these things were amazing. (laughs) So the part that stayed through to fifth edition is they're this slimy... Yellow ichor looking mass that has all of these tentacles that come off of it, and this one great big red eye that sort of sits in the middle of everything. Your generic slime monster. They look kind of like a roper, for any of you who know what a roper looks like, kind of that stalagmite kind of shape with these tentacles that come off of it. That was only one aspect of it. So these demons were servants of Lolth, the Spider Queen, and they used to have. A total of four physical forms. Oh wow! Yeah, the weird tentacle slime monster was one of them. The hentai monster was only one form.
1: That's not even my final form. That was <laughs>
0: not even their final form. <laughs> they could disperse themselves into a cloud of vapor. They could transform themselves into a giant spider. Nice. Because lolf. Because lolf. Or they could transform themselves into the form of a beautiful human or elven woman. I like it. So they're almost like, well,
1: honestly, they're kind of almost like Dracula or uh, one of the old school Stoker vampires. You had the mist form, you had an animal form, you had, obviously, a humanoid form. Yeah, I like these things. I mean, obviously, a spider instead of wolf because, again, wolf.
0: But, yeah, that was what we used to have, and now it's just like a CR5 tentacle monster.
1: Okay, Wizards, I want my yokel back. Just go ahead and fix that.
0: (laughs) So that might have to be our write-up for this week. Yes. Please. But those are some of the more prominent, more common demons that you run into. So one of the things that I have run into working on the plane of air module that I'm working on is there was a race that preceded the Tanari in the Abyss called the Oberiths. The Oberiths and a race called the Atorians were the progenitor races of the Tenari and the Atezu. So these are the progenitor races to the demons and devils that we know today.
1: So we're probably on a time frame of some of our Spellweavers before they had their cataclysm.
0: Yeah, these, yes. If not before that, Absolutely, yes. These are pre-multiverse. Pre-multiverse and even pre-deities in some regards. Almost. Okay. Because there are some snippets of lore hinted at in 3rd edition in the Fiendish Codex that says that the Oberiths and the Batorians were both created by a different proto-race called the Bernaloths. Okay. Who would have predated the gods. Yeah. So it's turtles all the way down.
1: It is absolutely turtles all the way down. This
0: is why I'm saying we could get five episodes out of this. Oh, so easily. So these are basically
1: your Zelnaga, and then who made the Zelnaga type thing. Again, referencing Blizzard, because I really did enjoy their games, even though they are going through a very difficult time
0: right now. Yes, they are. <laughs> a very difficult time of their own creation.
1: Yes, they have totally shot themselves in the foot. Uh, let's, let's just put Chickens put that absolutely out come home to roost. Yeah, no, this is absolutely their own fault. They handled everything wrong from the initial events to the complaints to the revelation of things. It's been handled incorrectly the entire way down, which is really disappointing to hear.
0: So we want to go ahead and say that we stand in support of the Blizzard employees. Yes. The Blizzard employers. Correct. And if
1: those employees seek to unionize, which I think would be a great idea, more power to them. I hope hope they pull
0: it off. Absolutely. Getting back on topic. (laughs) <laughs> so the Tanari started off as a slave race to the Oberiths. In the way early times, there was one Oberith sort of ruling over all of them. Her name has been lost to lore. She is just referred to as the Queen of Chaos. Which is an awesome name. Holy crap. <laughs> yes, she is simply the Queen of Chaos. Queen of Chaos, woohoo. <laughs> the depictions that I've seen of her, the art I've seen of her, kind of looks like ursula from the little mermaid it's the feminine upper body kind of the pale purple skin tone but below the waist are like octopus tentacles okay so she does have that sort of ursula look to her i like it she was instrumental in a war early on that was the forces of chaos versus the forces of law And the forces of law were headed by a race called the Vati, also known as the Wind Dukes. So in 5th edition, the Vati are a throwaway race mentioned once in the DMG as being subservient to the Djinn, which they are not. They precede all of the genies in the timeline. They were the original champions of law in the multiverse. They used to have an empire originating in the plane of air that covered all of the elemental planes as well as extending to multiple material plane worlds.
1: Now, see, with the part of lore where it says that they were subservient to the djinn, I can almost see that because how we get our d d texts and stuff like that, a lot of them are written from the character in-game, not necessarily the player character, but the character's in-game's perspective. You have like Mordenkai and Stone of Foes, you've got Tal Cauldron of Everything, things like that. If a djinn gave the people the information, so if the information were coming from the djinn themselves, while the Vati may have set things up for them, or helped them establish or however they worked, and then kind of went off wherever, The djinn would be like, yeah, they totally worked for us. Wink, wink. We're awesome. Because, I mean, they're djinn and that's how they're going to do. I could totally see the djinn trying to spin it off that way.
0: Yeah, but the way that it ended up going is the Queen of Chaos killed the, at that time, Prince of Demons, Obox Ob, and gave the title of Prince of Demons to her consort, Miska the Wolf Spider. And Miska was her primary general in this war where she led the forces of chaos out of the lower plains to wage war on the forces of law to try and basically wipe all traces of law off of the multiverse.
1: Again, a great campaign hook. Oh, my God.
0: And the Wind Dukes almost lost. They ended up creating this artifact that was called the Rod of Law that they ended up having to sunder in order to imprison Miska the wolf spider. And in sundering it, it became the legendary artifact known as the Rod of Seven Parts. So if you've ever heard of the Rod of Seven Parts from any of the old editions of D&D, that's where this comes from.
1: Yeah, I mean, this thing is baked in a ton of lore. Oh, it's so
0: much lore. Yeah. And the Queen of Chaos is also the entity who created Demogorgon, who is the current Prince of Demons. So, I like it.
1: Now, again, just to give you a mindset of the Queen of Chaos, remember her consort, her bed warmer, if you will, was a giant freaking wolf spider.
0: Almost. Think of a centaur. Now replace the horse with a spider and make him about 15 feet tall. So like an uber drider? Yes,
1: Oh, God. Yeah, see, that doesn't sound... You know what? I'm not going to king shame. That just doesn't sound appealing to me. But go Queen of Chaos. Go lay your eggs, however you do that. Sure. Have fun. I'm sure it was a very fulfilling relationship. I'm happy for you. Just not my flavor.
0: (laughs) So after Miska was defeated and imprisoned, apparently he is imprisoned somewhere on Pandemonium. So we'll get to that in a little bit later on. Does it
1: specifically mention Pandemonium? Yes. I thought that was the one you said Thought was in the uh, Citadel.
0: Yeah, I did think that he was imprisoned in the Citadel of Ice and Steel. But later on, I did find a reference that said that he is, in fact, imprisoned on Pandemonium. Okay. But after this defeat, the Queen of Chaos retreated back into the Abyss onto the 14th layer, which is referred to as the Steaming Fens, and has just disappeared. Has not been seen or heard from since. The term is plotting. And in this time, the Oberiths have been largely wiped out. There are still a few of them that are really hoping that the Queen of Chaos will make her big comeback so that they can come back and be in charge again. Some of the more prominent Oberiths include Dagon and Pazuzu, along with some others. Most of the Oberiths from the older editions have been reskinned as demon princes in the newer editions. Uh, starting with third edition and
1: I could see some of that and again, as we said, no one has ever really fully mapped out the extent of the abyss. I am sure there is a layer too that is just marshalling overss for round two as it were.
0: I could definitely see that yeah all right so whenever we're talking about the abyss in some of the other planes you had some big overarching features of the entire plane. You don't really have that in the abyss. The abyss changes wildly from one layer to the next.
1: That is the overarching feature.
0: That is the overarching feature, yes. In 2nd edition, illusion spells and wild magic spells were enhanced. That's the only real magic thing that was different. There was nothing about that in 3rd edition on, but that was the thing in 2nd edition.
1: But honestly, if you like that side roll or variant roll, there are so many layers within the Abyss that you can just throw it in, and you wouldn't break anything. You could have a layer where wild magic and fey magic go. It's absolutely crazy. You could have a layer where, for some reason, fey magic and wild magic just doesn't work. I would totally do that just to keep your, if you were doing multiple layers of the abyss, just to keep your players kind of guessing, is I would change the rules. Maybe some areas physical damage is doubled. Maybe it's halved, Maybe everybody has resistance to something. You really can play and tinker with a lot of these different things in a world building aspect, just because literally anything goes.
0: Right. And third edition actually had a D100 table where, if you didn't know where you were going, if you just jumped through a portal in the abyss, you could roll a D100 on this random encounter table and figure out what type of layer you ended up getting spit out in. I mean, some of them you got air dominant, so you can be in a plane like the plane of air where it's subjective gravity you're in free fall until you splat against something you know there's one there it's a blood war battleground so you spit out in the middle of this great big fight between the demons and devils a grass plain filled with predators see here an ocean of water a sea of acid oh my or a sea of magma these are some of the different things that you could run into
1: now with this table, something I really like and I think could really be used is I know a lot of groups, they don't have time to sit down and do a full long campaign, but a lot of people want to do a string of, basically one-offs, one or two, you know, session meetings and then they're done and they can go back and just rinse and repeat. I know Candlekit Mysteries has a lot of one-offs, which is a great resource. Uh, I'm really happy we just put that out. But you could have like a carnival, like a dark carnival. People go up and just your party comes up to this carnival whenever and you could either have it that's a trick or maybe for whatever reason they buy into this and they're all given a teleport stone with a timer. They step through this tent into a portal that just throws them somewhere in the abyss. There's your entire plot everything you got, and now you've got to survive or figure out whatever for how long before the timer runs up. Then whatever treasure you loot, you get to keep. So now it is a carnival game, you know? Maybe it's run by like an imp or something like that, but very easily something you can do for a quick one-off hook. You have your party there, they go, they murder hobo a bunch of stuff, or they, they discover a bunch of stuff, they pop out and the story's over. And you can rinse and repeat that so many times and it doesn't even have to be the same exact layer because you could roll this table real easily or just make up whatever the hell you want.
0: Right, yeah. So starting into some of the notable layers of the Abyss. Obviously, there are tons of layers of the Abyss. Most of them are not detailed, but there are some... With certain flavors. With certain flavors that are established. The first layer is called the Plane of Infinite Portals. This is where the River Styx is. This is where you just sort of show up whenever you first come to the Abyss. And it is pockmarked with all of these pits. And each pit is a portal that goes to a different layer of the Abyss. Some of the pits are consistent and always send you to the same layer. Some of the pits vary. Some of the pits are two-way, Some of them are one way. This is very much the old Scooby-Doo in the hallway trope. (laughs) Yes. Yes, it is. And in addition to all of these pits with all of these portals, you have a bunch of these iron strongholds just dotting the landscape everywhere because every demon that is powerful enough to command a following will have one of these iron strongholds. It's where their forces will rally whenever they're getting ready to launch a sortie against the devils. It's where the powerful demons will set up and they will astral project to be able to go send their uh, consciousness onto the material plane so that they can find souls to corrupt. So their bodies will stay here in the stronghold surrounded by all of their most powerful retainers who keep their body safe until they come back.
1: So it's kind of like a bunker. That's kind of cool.
0: Yes, absolutely. That's exactly what it is. Again, story of possible
1: hook is you just hop even to the first layer and you're here to put one particular demon down because he's doing something or you know that they're on the material plane. He's on a different plane. He's fighting, but you have figured out which stronghold he's located in and your job is to go bust up the stronghold and put him down while he's phased out.
0: Yeah, and I could definitely see this as being the end arc for a campaign where you've been dealing with this cult for 15 levels. Oh yeah, that'd be awesome. And you're just done with it. (laughs) And you're going to put it down. Yeah, you are going to end this one way or another. But there are a couple of specific locations within the Plane of Infinite Portals that are also fleshed out. One of them is called Broken Reach. Broken Reach is a stronghold that is controlled by a succubus sorcerer named Red Shroud. Oh my. And... This is the place where mercenaries for the blood war looking to get hired on by the demons congregate. This is where you go to get headhunted.
1: This is where you're going to find a ton of yugoloths. Yes,
0: you are totally going to find a ton of yugoloths here, but there is the portal to the city of Plague Mort, which is the gate city on the outlands where Sigil is that portal ends in the main hall in Broken Reach. So that's where that portal spits you out. So if you're coming from Sigil, the City of Doors, out to the Abyss and you go through the portal in Plague Mort, this is where you end up.
1: Just go ahead and straighten up your tie and say hi to Miss Red Shrug.
0: And then the other location is called Ferug. It was once the stronghold of a demon who was slain while she was astral projecting. And now it is basically a free-for-all whoever can hold it it's a very strategically important position because it is on the shores of the lakes of molten iron and because both the demons and the devils want as much iron as they can get for their strongholds because that is the one material that they use for their strongholds in the blood war because it's the one material that can hold up that is a very important location. And in 3rd edition, the last I could find any mention of it, it was occupied by a force charged by Demogorgon to defend the lakes against attacks from the devils.
1: So this stronghold is basically the Elder Wand of strongholds. You get it by taking over whoever was in there and they're coming after you afterwards.
0: Kinda, yeah. Yeah, I like it. So that's the first layer. The next one of real importance is called Ezograt. It is the realm of Grazd. Grazd is one of the more influential of the demon lords. I'm pretty sure that Grazd is either the lover or the child of Tasha. I can't remember which one because it's uh, Grazd and Igwilv. And I can't remember which one is which. I think Grazd is the lover and Igwilv is the child, but I might have that backwards
1: i'm not entirely certain i have no idea
0: but this particular demon lord is tied with tasha as in tasha's cauldron of everything tasha this particular demon is the one who gave her all of the insights that she needed to write the Demonomicon. oh nice hey everyone future ian here with a lore correction brought to you by the power of post-production it turns out that igwilv and tasha are the same person Grazd did take Igwilv, or Tasha, as a lover, and their child was Ayuz. Now, with that correction out of the way, let's get back to the show. So, this is a very prominent demon lord in D&D lore. And he's also one of the more powerful demon lords in that his realm covers three layers of the Abyss. Layers 45, 46, and 47. And he has a city called Zelatar. That exists in all three layers. And you could go into Xelotar, be walking down the street in layer 45, walk into a store, and the interior of that store is in layer 46. Confusing, but okay. I'm good with that. And the three layers are connected by the river of salt, which you're going to cringe a little bit at this. It is made from liquid salt crystals.
1: (sighs) Yeah. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm going to leave the chemist at home. Okay, move it along.
0: I know, right? Like, <laughs> it can't be liquid and a crystal at the
1: same time. It's a thin it, soup. It's a crunchy soup. It's both a thick and a crunchy soup. It's a good soup.
0: <laughs> I think it's under enough pressure to be liquefied. Well, I mean, if it was at the double point, perhaps, maybe. Or it could be at the triple point.
1: Potentially, because, I mean, they didn't mention vapor. So, again, delving into some weird science stuff, but in science, particularly in chemistry and physics, there are, that's what we call the triple point. So at various pressures, things exist as a solid liquid gas, and there are points where they can exist as two phases at the same time, or the magical triple point where it's a solid liquid and gas all at the same time. Though I'm still curious, even if it was at a double point between liquid and solid, the melting point,
0: I don't know if the lattice structure would still hold up, I mean, it would only have to be solid, large enough to be noticeably solid. Yeah. It would be very fine grains. Yes. But in any case, it's going to be a bad day for you if you fall in.
1: Yeah, very salty. Just dip your crackers in there, you'll be good. (laughs) Ooh, french fries.
0: So the three layers, because they are all part of Grast's realm, they are all very similar. The 45th layer is this gray, rain-swept step. It has a very Hades feel to it, It is very gray and drab. The 46th layer is illuminated from the ground. So the ground is your light source, not a sun in the sky. So all of your shadows are backwards. So all of your shadows go up instead of going down. Ooh, I like it. And then the 47th layer can only be reached from one of the other two layers of his realm. There are no portals into it from any other layer. Not even the first. It is illuminated by a blue sun and fire here burns purple instead of red and deals cold damage instead of fire damage. So this place is just confusing. I like it. So I'm just wanting to see like a red dragon show up and be all haha, it's fire and then just walk into it. Oh,
1: that'd be awesome.
0: And find out that it's not fire like
1: you're used to. That's awesome. I would definitely sign up for that.
0: So the portals between the layers appear in groves of viper trees. Now, we talked a little bit about viper trees when we were talking about Hades. They're these walking trees that have snakes for branches. They're a little bitey. They're a little bitey. Would not suggest as a pet. Or sometimes they appear as these furnaces of green flame. With flu powder. But... (laughs) <laughs> because Grazd has a little bit of a sense of humor. Sometimes the furnaces are just furnaces. <laughs> I love that. And they're full of fire and
1: pain. Oh, that's beautiful. I love that. Oh my God, that's awesome.
0: <laughs> so you have to know which furnaces are portals and which furnaces are furnaces. Like the ones that are portals just have like a
1: little space here behind the portal so it still feels warm. Or actually, yeah, depending on the layer, it could be cold.
0: And so the city of Zelotar exists on all three layers. Like I said, it is interdimensional and... Visible within all layers is the Argent Palace, which is where Grazd presides. It is a palace with 66 ivory towers and 100 mirrored halls.
1: Oh, that sounds terrifying.
0: And by mirrored halls, I mean it's a mirror maze. Right. The interior of his palace is a giant mirror maze.
1: Have you ever been to some of those mirror mazes that are in Gatlinburg? No. I think there's a building called Magic Quest that has some. And it's fun, but it is absolutely disorientating. And you're definitely not quite dizzy, but you're definitely disorientated by the time you leave. I find them kind of fun in small doses. So imagining, you know, that there's a hundred of these things would be uh, just a giant bag of nope. <laughs>
0: yeah. And to top it all off, also within these halls are bodax. Woohoo. Which I think is weird because Bodaks, I thought, were supposed to be worshippers of Orcus. So what in the world worshippers of Orcus are doing in the mirror halls of Grazd, I don't know. The term is indentured servant. They might just be stuck. That's also a possibility as well, yes. So that takes care of Azagrat. Next up is Thanatos, which is the realm of Orcus. It's the 113th layer of the Abyss. This is a layer that is dominated by the undead. It is depicted as a frozen tundra that is dotted by tombstones crusted with mosses and fungi. Sometimes they are solitary, sometimes they're clustered together, but there's tombstones everywhere. I'm
1: liking the atmosphere, I'm liking the feel. Again, kind of late October, get that good fall chill in.
0: We're getting to that part. (laughs) So the heart of the lair is Naratir, the City of the Dead. It is a city carved into the surface of a frozen ocean. Oh, wow. And to quote the third edition Man of the Plains, it is a frigid necropolis of tall mausoleums, towering funeral obelisks, crypt parapets, and carpets woven from the hair removed from the thousands of unquiet dead that reside within. Sweet Jesus! It was cool till that last little bit, and it just got creepy. So some of the prominent denizens include zombies, ghouls, and whites, liches of all types, and vampiric giants. Wow. I mean, just wow.
1: Yeah. I never put those two things together I should have. That could be a lot of fun to play with.
0: <laughs> yes oh my god
1: yes. this place sounds terrifying holy crap
0: well i mean it is the realm of orcas so it should be terrifying there was a time near the beginning of third edition where it was rumored that Orcus was dead and one of the gods of the drow pantheon moved in to take over but then rumors were that Orcus wasn't as dead as people thought he was and then the goddess that had moved in disappeared So this was about the time of the Rogue March and Orcus becoming Tenebrous and all of that nonsense. Gotcha. So there's all of that. Now there's a bunch of other less important ones as we go down. I went back to the top of the numerical order and working my way down. So the sixth layer is the Realm of a Million Eyes. It is the home of the Great Mother, who is the chief deity of Beholders. The entire layer is wound through with these twisting tunnels and the tunnels are lined studded with these living eyes as if they were you know encrusted with gems but instead of gems it's these eyeballs oh my and each of these eyes is an eye of the great mother herself
1: you now is this the same great mother in a uh, critical role by chance
0: uh not that i'm
1: aware of because i think wasn't that the name of the two of their gods no. Okay, that I've misremembered.
0: No, I don't think that Matt Mercer grabbed the God of Beholders.
1: I didn't think so either. That's why I was like, "Is there an upcoming twist that I'm like need a spoiler alert for?" Or <laughs> which 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 campaign? Second campaign. So uh, the God I may of, have
0: just not gotten that far yet.
1: The God of Caduceus and um, oh, that's the Earth Mother. Earth Mother. Okay. Okay. Good.
0: Yes, that's where I'm broken. Yeah, say. that's uh, Melora. Okay. Yeah, the Earth Mother.
1: I was going to say, because I could see Matt Mercer doing something like that. Where it's, oh, look, I'm this wonderful, happy deity. Ha <laughs> <laughs> nope. <laughs> okay,
0: anyway. All right, so the next one of note is the 23rd layer, which is the ice wastes. It's home to, let me see if I can pronounce this right, Kostchi. Okay. The demon prince of frost giants, who rules from the Glacier Citadel.
1: Oh, crap. What's the name of Loki's father? Uh, Him.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Not Thor, the other one. Well, not Odin, the other one.
1: Yeah, not Odin, the other one.
0: But yes, so that's about all that I could find on that particular layer.
1: Frost giants go there. Done.
0: The 66th layer is another fairly important one. It's the Demon Web Pits. It is the home of Lolth, the Spider Queen, as well as most of the Dark Celderine, so most of the Drow Pantheon. The entire layer resembles a massive black spider web, and Lolth's stronghold On this layer is supposedly a giant iron spider that walks the web. That's more than slightly terrifying. And I love it.
1: I love it too, but that's kind of terrifying. I just want to go back that someone as big, as bad as Lolth only has one layer, while Grazit has three. Just to put that in perspective for you.
0: Yeah, just to put that in perspective. And Grazit isn't even the most powerful of the Demon Lords. Um, Next one is Smargard, which is the 74th layer. It's the home of Mershalk, who is one of the Yanti gods. The entire layer is a jungle with acid rain, fermenting poison, and ever-changing colors. So it is the worst acid trip ever. I was going to say, it's a hippie realm. And it is possibly just layers of jungle canopy with no floor at the bottom. It's like the Grateful Dead continuously like piped through the floor.
1: <laughs> possibly. I would totally do that. Yeah, so I, I would definitely, like, if I was doing anything here, I'd have some Grateful Dead or some fish. You know, I'd get some old...
0: Iron like, butterfly. Psych-
1: yeah, some old psychedelic rock and just totally play that background for my players.
0: I just love the fact that it has this Yonti god, which the Yonti have this very Mesoamerican feel to them, but the layer is called Smargard, which has a very Norse feel to it.
1: Yeah, the naming conventions are a bit wonky. I'll grant yeah. you that. Now, see, you say the Yanti have a Mesoamerican feel. I can kind of see that. I always figured a more Southeast Asia, kind of like Burma and Malaysia.
0: Possibly, yeah. I
1: could see either one, though.
0: I'm just going off of the 5th edition art. Right. The 5e art has a very Aztec, Mayan feel to
1: it. Yeah, I can see that with the step pyramids.
0: The step pyramids with just the dress that they show the various Yanti in. I don't remember the dress. I remember that. But I was going to say even like in,
1: uh, not Korea. cambodia Cambodia. there we go they have step pyramids in cambodia as well so again
0: right step pyramids are not exclusive to mesoamerica no they are
1: not and so i mean i'm not saying it was
0: aliens but it was totally (laughs) yanti it was the lizard people who are now underground that's right and the moon is made of cheese all right getting back on topic (laughs) level 88 is called abyssum really creative it's also referred to as the gaping maw that is the name that they gave it in 5th edition. This is the plane of Demogorgon. Demogorgon being the prince of demons, the single most powerful of the demon lords. His palace is these two serpentine towers topped with skull-shaped minarets, but the bulk of the palace is underground, underwater. Nice. It is also referred to as the Brine Flats because it is full of this super salty ocean, like Dead Sea super salty. So if you're
1: making pickles, you're set.
0: And it's got all of these rocky outcroppings that are used as rookeries for the different varieties of flying demons. And the waters are home to aboliths, Kraken and demonic manta rays. Poor Steve Irwin. That was a stingray. Oh. Manta rays and stingrays are not the same thing. They're similar, (laughs) but not the same. Do not put that evil on them. (laughs) Anyway, next one is the 222nd layer called the Slime Pits. This is the home to... Jublex, the Slime Lord, and Zugtmoy, the Lady of Fungus. Great names. Well done on the names. I kind of like that. The whole thing is a giant morass of bubbling caustic slime called the Amoebic Sea. Again, a great name. And every so often, life forms are just spontaneously created by the sludge. That's kind of cool. So even in chaos, there can be creation. Life finds a way. Uh, The 348th layer is called the Fortress of Indifference. Also an amazing name. This is where every teen lives. (laughs) It is just a a layer full of tumbled rocks with these jagged peaks and deep gorges and is completely devoid of all natural life. So this is what you have to look forward to in a few more years again. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And at one point on this layer, there's... The Fortress of Indifference, which is a single 200-foot tall iron tower. And it has the bodies of humanoids woven into the blocks as mortar. It was a subtle touch. <laughs> the demon lord that rules over this layer is called Taffion. He is a Nalfeshni, which they are great big fat demons with a little bitty wings that can kind of hover a little bit. But the whole purpose of this particular layer is that it is a refuge for the outcast tenari and the half fiends and tieflings who are seeking to avoid the blood war
1: okay so it's a bunch of draft dodgers Kind of see that i'm kind of getting a harconian feel from this guy
0: yes he does have a very barren harconian feel to him because he is also horribly scarred and he walks with the assistance of a crude iron body brace
1: okay yeah definitely getting a harconian feel from this
0: And he has a magic rod called the Despoiler of Flesh, which is made from stitched together tongues. They have put so much time and so much awesome (laughs) stuff into this lore. Oh my God. And the rod can alter any creature's shape into any other shape the wielder chooses. So this starts to feel like, what's the Timsi? I can never say
1: the name right, but it's one of the... Timsi Timsi from... From vampire, yeah. If vampires and uh, white wolf games, yes.
0: Yeah, it does have a very jammy feel to it. So next one is the 422nd layer, which is called the Death Dells, which is home to Yinogu, god of the Gnolls. and it is an endless, barren hunting ground of just hills and ravines where everything drinks blood, even the plants. Oh my. Okay. Let's see here, next one is the 489th layer called the Noisome Vale. It is the domain of a powerful baylor named Tarnhem. And you shall not pass. It is a volcanic layer that is filled with sulfur gas, Yummy. except for this ravine that runs through the middle of everything that is full of worms. The worms range between one inch and 10 feet long. They filter the sulfur gas. So within 50 feet of the ravine, the air is breathable. Okay but the constant susurrus of writhing worms will drive you mad. Totally understandable. (laughs) Totally understandable. So there's that. And then the last really notable one of the numbered layers is number 600, the endless maze, which is home to Baphomet, the horned King and Prince of Beasts. Baphomet is the goat headed demon that you see most commonly affiliated with satanic cult stuff. In the mundane world. It is his face that is used by the Church of Satan. Right.
1: They wanted to build a statue. I forget what state it was, but they passed there. I want to say it was Michigan. Was it Michigan where they passed the thing where they would allow all religious symbols at the courthouses so they could keep the Ten Commandments there, which Wellington can find. But that means stuff like this got to be put up as well. I will say one thing with the Baphomet thing that drives me batty is Baphomet does have that very famous the two fingers pointing up. and Everybody's like, oh look, this politician is using that same it's this. The symbol that Baphomet uses, he has two fingers pointing up, but that's only half the jester. The other half is the other side. His right arm has two fingers pointing down. And that is as above, so below, which is a alchemic reference. But that finger with the two fingers pointing up, you also see that like in Hunger Games and people are like, oh, it's Illuminati. That is only half of the known jester. So
0: well, in Hunger Games, it's three fingers, it's three
1: fingers. Okay. Yeah, I've seen people try to reference that as there. But
0: yeah, so, but yeah, that is
1: only half of that gesture, I and mean, that's just a personal pet peeve, it's like it's not the same cuz you're only seeing part of
0: it. <laughs> yeah. So the entire layer is a giant labyrinth inhabited by minotaur's ogres and goristros. Makes sense, I got it. And Baphomet rules from a ziggurat that is at the heart of the layer, surrounded by a 1-mile-wide moat, and within the moat is more labyrinth. As in you have to go underwater through a labyrinth to get through the moat.
1: Now, is it a flooded moat or is it just a dug moat? There are two different kinds of moats. Not every moat is a flooded moat.
0: I think it is a flooded moat. Okay. Because it did say in the third edition, I think it was in the third edition, Man of the Plains. I could be wrong on that. But it did say that there were further labyrinthine passages through the moat. There are staircases and passages under the water that you would have to pass through in order to get to him in the heart of the labyrinth. So cast your water breathing and good luck. Yes. And then finally, the Oberith by the name of Pale Knight was once the ruler of this lair, and he still controls a portion of this lair near his stronghold, which is called the Bone Castle. However,
1: he is too busy because he is touring with his Nordic metal band most weekends. <laughs>
0: Alright, so there are some other extra things in addition to all of the numbered planes with all of their fun little details. There is one layer that is unnumbered, but is referred to as the planes of Rust. It was mentioned in the 4th edition adventure module Into the Abyss, as opposed to Out of the Abyss in 5th edition. And the layer used to be a swamp that had three intermittent portals that just by happenstance, connected to the Nine Hells. It was the only layer of the Abyss that they could find that actually had portals that went between the Abyss and the Nine Hells.
1: Nice. So that is definitely a fun little... I'm sure there's a lot of sieging back and forth going on there, I would imagine.
0: So I'm getting to that part. Okay. So the devils snuck in because it was this abandoned layer. Nobody went there. There was nothing of importance there except for these portals that the devils happened to find. And so the devils started setting up colonies on this layer so that they would have a way whenever the portals would open, they had a way to send troops into the abyss and a staging ground to launch from. And then the demons found out about him, as is likely to happen as is likely to happen. And so Orcus and Jublex combined forces showed up on this layer and amplified the poisonous nature of the plane and imbued it with necrotic energy. Basically, they showed up and said, nope. (laughs) They showed up and turned up all the dials to 11. I like it. And so what happened was it caused all of the iron structures on the entire layer to rust and decay and crumble until all that was left was a layer of rust. Okay. So that is the entirety of this layer is this, this giant field of rust. I like it. So all that's left here wandering about are undead and evil constructs. So this is what I picture when you tell
1: me this. Remember the intro to Terminator 2?
0: No. Okay. So Because I haven't watched Terminator 2.
1: You've not watched Terminator 2? What the hell? Where have you been? Holy crap.
0: Are you serious? I have had a great many things to try and catch up on. Yeah, but that came out in like 91. The movie's
1: like 20 years old. Now. I was two. Yeah, exactly. So You've had this much time to watch it. So, anyway, in Terminator 2, they start off in the future where they've got the machines fighting and they're going through. And at this point, the Terminators themselves aren't even, they don't look cybernetic. They're just basically walking, metallic skeletons are going through. And it ends as they're walking over a field of crushed human skulls. So, I kind of get that picture with this, you know, kind of that scene where that thing yeah. comes down and crushes that skull in dust.
0: Yeah, I can, I can kind of see that.
1: And, and go but. watch... It actually, you know what? As old as it is, it's held up extremely well. And it's actually 30 years old now, not 20, because I can math. So you had 30 years to watch the thing. And like I said, it's actually held up extremely
0: well. Uh, it's a good movie. Check it out. So all of this rust has clogged up the portals so that the portals are closed now. But now, every so often, the devils will send parties into this plane to try and locate and dig up the portals. So that they can have access to them again and so periodically the demons patrol this layer so that they can intercept the devils and stop them from unearthing the portals. But there were three major landmarks within the Plane of Rust. The first was called the Bloody Fen. It's this area where the crust of rust is pretty thin. And if you're walking out on it, you can break and fall through into this acidic necrotic sludge underneath.
1: The crust is rust, so being careful is a must. Yes. Which would be a great oracle thing to give your party if you're going through here. Oh my God, I gave you that one for free.
0: The next one is called Fort Splinter, it is the largest of the ruined devil colonies. Legends claim that powerful magic and numerous artifacts are hidden within possibly even one of these portals to the Nine Hells. And so people will occasionally seek it out to try and find these artifacts that can turn the tide in the Blood War. But tales also tell that the spirits of the devils that died garrisoning this place are still here and will still attack and repel intruders. Interesting. So you have devil ghosts? Devil ghosts. Devil ghosts. Because devils aren't enough. Nope, they get phase two. Why not? And then the last one is the Palace of Dust, which is this recurring image. So there are these rust storms, kind of like dust storms, that come up across the plain every so often. And every so often when they die down, they leave what appears to be this very elaborate palace with all of these different towers off in the distance. And no one has ever been able to catch it before it blows away again.
1: This kind of reminds me again of the necropolis in the mummy where it's magic and it's only like at a certain time of year and it's after the dust storm blows up and they can see it and have to rush to get there within a certain right. amount of time. Kind of, yeah. Yeah, I get that feel from this.
0: And because of the nature of the plane, any iron or steel items corrode even magical ones.
1: You know who would do really well in these planes? I mean, you'd have a little bit of an issue with the rust, but a circle of the spore druid. Yeah. Because
0: you'd be largely immune to
1: all the poison, the fungal stuff. I mean, oh no, you know, a circle of the spore with fungi. And then obviously you're not using your metal weapons. Yeah, I could see running a circle of the spore druid doing particularly well through these layers.
0: So the way that it goes is that every day, every steel or iron item that you possess takes a cumulative minus one penalty to either their attack or to their armor bonus up to a maximum of minus three and any item that is reduced below its bonus so this would happen on the first day for anything non-magical because they have zero bonus right but say a plus two great sword after the second day if or after on the third day when it's reduced to a minus three it crumbles to rust nice There were spells in third edition that you could cast on it to restore it, but by and large, even magic items, if they are reduced to a minus three and they're not at least a plus three item, they are reduced to rust.
1: So keep your visits brief.
0: Yes. The other two little things that I wanted to talk about, one of them were called the Ships of Chaos.
1: Also another great name. Also a great metal band name, so double points for that.
0: These were mentioned in a sidebar in the third edition Man of the Plains. They apparently made an appearance in a couple of the Forgotten Realms novels, specifically in the War of the Spider Queen series, in books four and five, Extinction and Annihilation, where apparently one of the characters managed to capture one of these ships. But they are... Supposedly made from powdered bones, crushed spirits, and petitioners. Sounds reasonable. The description that was given in the books, all of the rigging is made from intestines. The sails are flayed human skin. So this was an advanced calculus class? Pretty much. Okay. <laughs> the rudder for the ship is a dragon's wing. That's kind of awesome. But they were commissioned by the demons. It didn't say who they commissioned them from. But they are commissioned by the demons For use against the devils in the blood war. And they are designed specifically to combat law. I like it. And they are capable of hopping the planes. My guess is that they probably use them to sail the river Styx. My poor, poor Modrons. And for the right price, you too can book passage on one of these boats.
1: Woohoo, Carnival Cruises. You still require vaccination.
0: Yes. (laughs) Uh, Talking a little bit earlier about the Manes. They were used as the fuel source for this ship. There's a giant gaping maw soul furnace down below decks and they would just huckamane into the gaping mouth of this soul furnace. And that's how they powered the ship. I can see this. I'm going to
1: make the historian you cry, but you know the real world inspiration for that, right? Which real world inspiration are you going for? So in the early 1900s, about the time they found King Tut and the whole, you know, Egyptian, I don't want to say renaissance, but interest sparked back. Oh back. yeah. They were, they were using the mummies as fuel. Yeah. Because they were covered in all the pitch and everything. So yeah, it's just entire mummies. They were throwing them in for ships and for the trains. So yeah, there you go. All of one desecrating the dead Two, all of that historic knowledge and research and history. And oh, look, train to go. Brrr,
0: you know, yeah, plus, you know, grave robbing. And yeah. Those... Like I said, grave desecration and all that. Yeah. Don't do that guys. <laughs> And then the last thing that I really wanted to touch on was this thing called Demon Wing, which was created by Monty Cook in a second edition adventure. I think it was called The Paladin in Hell, I think is what the module was called. Again, good names. I wish I could name things like these people. They have some great names. But this was an entire layer of the abyss that Demogorgon shaped and transformed into a flying stone walled ship capable of flying between the planes it is the flying detriment yes it is a giant stone airship that's kind of awesome and it is commanded by a baylor did you ever play the original final fantasy i played part of it i didn't get all the way through towards
1: it. the end one of the things you earn or win i forget exactly how you get it is a giant flying ship but i could totally see it being something like this because by that point you have like Kicked three or four of the elemental gods in the teeth, and are looking for the last
0: one. I remember doing that in uh, Final Fantasy Four.
1: Well, potentially, yeah. I don't think I've ever played four.
0: Well, given our Dragoon episode, you know that I've played Final Fantasy Four. Right. All right, so that's about everything that I pulled up. That is the... The highlights. Yeah, you know, the highlights from 30,000 feet. Right. Like I said, we were just kind of touching on everything. This is very much a
1: survey episode on the Abyss. I am certain we're going to come back and revisit a lot of these planes just because they have built so much lore into them. And any one of these planes we've talked about, there's a lot that you could use, a lot of potential for campaigns, a lot of potential for world building, a ton of potential for homebrewing. The abyss itself leads itself to homebrewing because it is so chaotic. So therefore you can do anything and it would be really hard to make something broken because everything is so weird. So if you made it broken, you could just make something equally broken and throw it against it. And you could just make whatever kind of horrible, horrible creature you want. And if your players complain, it's hey, it's a chaotic plane, so what?
0: (laughs) Yeah, and I can definitely see taking your Pact of the Fiend warlock. Oh, yeah. And being able to flavor them based on which one of these demon princes you wanted to be connected to. Absolutely. Granted, canonically, most often you're going to be going with a devil and not a demon. Because devils you make bargains with. And demons just allow you to live because you're useful. Right. But yeah, I can definitely see, you know, taking a Pact of the Fiend warlock and sort of flavoring it a little bit for uh Jublex or Zogtmoy or Baphomet.
1: Even Lolf, honestly. Oh, yeah. What yeah. I was thinking it would be fun is if you had more than one warlock in your party, either two different demons or a demon and a devil. And, you know, their patrons, as it were, are at odds and are trying to work through their proxies. And so, you know, not outright player versus player combat, but definitely some player versus player tension just by what their deities or their patrons and their tasks or their ambitions would be.
0: I would actually personally prefer to do this as concurrent games, Oh, that would be awesome. Just have your parties interact every now and again? Yes. Where each party's actions affect the world for the other party. Oh, that'd be so much... That'd be hard to run, but that'd be so
1: much fun. You'd have to have a huge gaming group to do that.
0: And then at the end, they face off against each other. I would
1: totally do that. I need to figure out how to make that campaign work. And then find enough people to sit through
0: both of them. Right. (laughs) But yeah, so that's basically what I got today. Like I said, there is enough here to where we could do a complete five-episode arc. I could definitely see us coming back and doing an episode on the Blood War. I could definitely see us coming back and at least touching on the war between the Queen of Chaos and the Wind Dukes. Okay. Talking a little bit about that conflict and the fallout for that and how that has played out across the lore to today.
1: I would love that. That'd be amazing. But as it is now, the Modrons keep marching on, and so we must follow.
0: Indeed. So thank you everyone for joining us today. We tried to keep the tangents to a minimum. (laughs) If you have any comments, suggestions, or ideas for future episodes, please send us an email under commentates at gmail.com or send us a direct message through our Twitter account at UCT homebrew. I'm still doing the Shakespearean Insult Page Day calendar inspired roleplay prompts 6 days a week. They go up on the Twitter account and then they get cross-posted to the Instagram and Facebook accounts at undercommon taste. We are also on Patreon, patreon.com/undercommon taste. If you are enjoying the show and you want to help us out a little bit financially, please consider going and becoming a patron.
1: You can listen to our podcast wherever you find your podcast. As always, give us a rate and review this helps increase your visibility and lets us know what you want to hear about next week. I believe we are marching down through the nine layers of hell
0: next week. We're
1: marching through the nine layers of hell. So uh, join us next week and happy gaming.
0: Thank you for joining us for another episode of Undercommon taste. If you enjoyed what you heard, please pass it along to your friends. If you have comments, suggestions, or ideas, you can email them to us at undercommontaste at gmail.com. If we like your idea, it may make it into a future episode. You can find us wherever you find your podcasts, and we would greatly appreciate any likes, ratings, and comments you could provide. Find us on social media. We're at Undercommon Taste on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, and on Twitter at the handle at UCTHomebrew. If you would like to help support the show financially, please visit our Patreon page, at patreon.com slash undercommontaste. Our theme is Massacre Anne, written and performed by Mary Crowell and used with permission. You can find her online at marycrowell.bandcamp.com or on Patreon at patreon.com slash Crowell. Thanks again for listening, and stay safe. You'll hear from us again soon.